This morning we go back into 1 Peter, having taken last week off to, uh, not off, we didn't take it off, we just redirected ourselves to talk about Christ's birth and uh, his coming and dwelling among us. Uh, we, to pick up where we have been, we have moved away from the relationships to a degree. We have moved out of that area talking about all the different relationships and looked into the, the other another one of the significant themes of Peter, and that is our suffering. That how do we engage, and how do we endure, and for what purposes are we uh, confronted with suffering in this world? And we hopefully along the way have realized that we really haven't suffered very much. <laughs> that we have been pretty uh, soft in this area, uh, we think if things don't quite go our way, if we get a flat tire on the way to work and we're a little late for this or a little harried here, that that's suffering. And that's really not what Peter has uh, in his mind at all. Uh, he's really talking about something more substantial than that where you have opposition that is not just uh, uh, inconvenience, but it is threatening, sometimes life-threatening, certainly uh, in terms of your place and role and, and activity in society is certainly threatening, where they have declared themselves, or really declared you their enemy, I should say that. Uh, and we are beginning to see that more and more in our world, even here in, in Western civilization, where we have identified uh, certain groups, conservative groups, generally speaking, uh, but religious fundamentalists, as the old term was used, um, as the threat. And while we've seen that developed in other areas, we have seen it really blossom in these last few months. And so we are beginning to uh, see on the near horizon that this kind of suffering Peter has in mind is more than likely going to be uh, something we're going to have to grapple with in the near future. And so, appropriately, we want to find out, well, what are we supposed to be suffering for? It's not just suffering for suffering. Say, I'm not going to go out there and try to suffer uh, so I can be more like Christ. But we are recognizing that when we function and in a godly manner, in an ungodly place, that the ungodly will react to that. And we would like them to be convicted and to... Uh, feel shamed, as, the, as Peter talks about here, and respond to that with uh, asking the reason for the hope that is in. Why are you different? And that would be our, our desired response, certainly, because we want all men everywhere to come to repentance, for that is the will of God. And we're going to talk a lot about the will of God today. And so we come to this, but we see, in fact, that most of the world, when they respond to our righteousness and their sense of shame, their sense of guilt, that rather than recognize that shame and recognize that guilt, they attack those who cause it. And thus they want to make the one who is standing up for right that exposes their wrong, they want to make them the enemy. And this is their tactic to alleviate their sense of guilt and shame. And so uh, we're, we should anticipate that. But uh, we find that that really shouldn't be the case. The, fir, the prior one should be the case. They should, and historically, uh, in, in societies and in our country in, included, um, when we are in a condition of seeking after right and virtue, and this was true in the Roman Empire early on, where they talked about Roman virtues, that they would applaud those that stood up and lived rightly no matter the cost. They would applaud you doing the ethical thing. Uh, you were uh, set up as being the, an example to be followed. Uh, one of the terms for my office in our country is the term parson. Uh, how many of you ever heard that referring to clergy members as a parson? Kind of an old term. Uh, but what does that word mean? It really means the chief person in the community, that that's the person, that, that the parson, and you can hear the sound of that, he's the chief person of the community that we look to as an example of righteous living. 
And uh, when you look at societies that still have that mentality, I'm still going to look at that and I'm going to follow that. What I encounter is when I tell people I'm a pastor, um, they usually start giving... <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear their responses um, because usually their responses are all dealing with their own guilt and explaining it away. Uh, trying to excuse themselves and uh, they... Uh, Rather than trying to uh, recognize that, they're trying to excuse themselves. So, I, you know, I used to, they tell me their stories, and they vary by the people, but inevitably it's, I'm excused from being what I should be, uh, and I'm just, I become really just a reminder of them, but uh, no confession to the point of saying, I need to change this, I need to correct this. And can you help me do that? Very rarely do I have that kind of response from anyone. But in other days, in bygone days, that's what we did. We set up these people as examples to follow, these people of character, these people of virtue, and they were our heroes. They were the ones we were supposed to emulate. Now we set up a different list of people to emulate, right? Um, actors, actresses, sports figures, and what makes them people we want to emulate is because they are rich and popular. Ultimately, that's all it is. Popularity and, and the attainment of earthly goods. And somehow we feel that that's, now we should have their following. And, and if you want to just find out, look at who has the great followings and then think about, are they righteous people? Well, they aren't. Quite the contrary. And so we aren't building our list of those that we look up to uh, of righteous people in our society. We have denigrated that and, and really destroyed it. It's more than just denigrated, it's gone. And so we try to avoid people of righteousness as leaders and we embrace those that of questionable character all the way around. And so this is what we are confronting. And so when Peter says, listen, here's what you should be suffering for. You're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. And that's a state of blessedness that the world should hate you because they hated your Savior. You're also going to be suffering uh, for your own good, to sanctify yourself, to set yourself apart. And we talked about that as well. And then we talked about your impact upon the world, that you're there to remind them of their need for a savior, they're there to be ashamed, and yes, that is one facet. They should have that reaction to you, uh, and if they don't, you're not portraying Christ very well to them. If they feel comfortable with you, I'm not talking safe, there's a difference between that, okay? I have people feel safer around me because they know I'm not going to maltreat them, but that doesn't mean they feel comfortable around me. In fact, most people feel very uncomfortable, especially when they find out what I do for a living. Uh, and <laughs> we had a guest in Sunday school this morning that came in to talk to another pastor, and he shook my hand. He says, what do you do for a living? Because you don't just preach. And I was like, no, this is what I do for a living. It's my other things that give me calluses and a stronger handshake than most. But for most people, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Then I have pastors come and say, what do you do for a living because you don't pastor? I was like, yes, I do. I just don't do just that. But we find that when they encounter that, that they should be ashamed. And Satan wants to remove that. And there's two ways of doing that. By, by damaging you, your testimony, by convincing you and tempting you to abandon righteousness, or by darkening their hearts against you. And either one of those is effective, and Satan knows that. And I believe we are in a time period where we have seen so many in the church compromise themselves that they really don't have a testimony. Uh, and what that allows for is for you to have an opportunity to be an even brighter light, to stand for righteousness, and so when you have coworkers saying, well, this person says they're a Christian, and you say you're a Christian, but you two act and live completely differently, okay, you need to have an answer for that. 
And if they say, you're doing what is right, and they'll usually recognize ethical behavior. They'll, act, they'll, they'll recognize a hypocrite versus a genuine article. They can recognize it. Don't think you can fool the world. They'll recognize the genuine deal from a hypocrite who says they're a Christian, but they live like this, like this, like this, and they say, well, they're not any different. Maybe they're sometimes even worse. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church, right? Even some things that were worse that even the world knows is evil going on in the church. And so we have an opportunity to stand for righteousness. We have an opportunity to be a witness to them. And that witness of our righteousness is not to make them feel good, but to make them feel ashamed. And we talked about that necessity within the context of our witness, that if people do not sense their sin, if they do not weep over their evil, and they aren't brokenhearted, uh, they will not come to Christ. Not genuinely, not fully. And thus, we do injury to them to try to avoid them feeling bad. I don't want them to feel bad about themselves while I witness to them. Oh, yes, you do. It is absolutely necessary for their salvation. Just like it's absolutely necessary for our children to feel bad when they've done wrong so they can be sorry. It is absolutely necessary. And so when we talk about our witness, and in verse 16 we said that those who defame you as evil, those revile your good kind of Christ may be ashamed. Peter understands that's the first step to salvation. And you skip that step, you're not going to have genuine conversions. You're not going to have, because what is one of the words we insert in terms of the human side of the salvation process? What is the word that John the Baptist used? What is the word that Jesus used? What is the word that Peter used? What is the word Paul used? Repent. Repent means I recognize that there's bad and I need and I am guilty of that bad. I need to be ashamed, and now I need to turn away from that, that condition of being an enemy of God and turn to being the friend of God and embrace the, the work of Jesus Christ. And so we cannot call people repentance if there is no sorrow in their life. And Romans tells us that godly sorrow leads to repentance. We skip that step. We've done injury. And so do not underestimate that maybe one of the most powerful elements of your living righteously before an ungodly world is to make them feel their sin. Feel ashamed. To look at their life and look at your life and look at their life and look at your life and look at their life and look at your life and be ashamed. Because you're doing what's right and they know they're doing what's wrong whether they acknowledge it or not. We want to bring them to the point of acknowledging their sin or they cannot be saved. You really love people, you got to bring them to knowledge of their sin. There will be no repentance otherwise. So do not be afraid of the concept that they should be ashamed. It is part of our evangelism, and while it has largely been missing in so much evangelism, so-called, in this modern era, it is an absolutely necessary step, and I believe that's why we have so many marginal Christians, because they never wept over their sin. They never wept over the condition that they were as enemies of God and haters of righteousness. So now we come to the final one. That's all review. Now we come to our final one. Okay, that's today's message. <laughs> Why do we suffer in this world? And this is the trickiest one of them all. It's the hardest maybe to understand but it's necessary and it's, and it's vital that we do so. I can understand that if I'm good and the world's evil, they're going to hate me. They hated Jesus. They crucified him. They yelled out that. They, they turned their backs on him. They ceased believing in him. Things like that. I, I, that we get. We get the idea that maybe it's good for our sanctification, that it helps distinguish us from the world and helps me to uh, identify that I don't want to be worldly, I want to be of another kingdom, and we can recognize that. And even the, hopefully, having just talked about and two weeks ago referenced the whole idea of our witness, we can begin to grasp that. Well, it is necessary. Uh, they need to know that they are in darkness, and to help them, you need to provide light. You don't go become dark to help people in the dark. Okay? 
If I turned off all the lights in here, I said, okay, help each other. Well, the people who are going to be the most helpful, the people who are going to, what? Have a flashlight. <laughs> oh, now you're helpful. The rest of us are just going to grope around. Jesus uses that example. You're the blind leading the blind. You're not helpful. So maybe we have some concept. We come to this last category. Why do Christians suffer? Why should we anticipate suffering and we struggle? Verse 17 says, For it is better, of, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3, verse 17, For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What an odd way to end this little segment. He's not really ending it he's going to give us some examples of Jesus. We're going to look into the, some theological study now after this week and then weeks to come on, on Christ and baptism and things that are going to come up here in the balance of this chapter. But we come now to this whole concept that it is the will of God sometimes for you to suffer. Now you know me when it comes to those that kind of talk, that I am uh, reticent to just say everything that happens is the will of God. We are not of that breed here at this church, and if you are, you're probably going to not, well, you've been here long enough, most all of you, that it doesn't bother you anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm not a Christian determinist, all right? Determinism means that everything is going to be exactly the way God has ordained it, and we have nothing to do but just live out this this uh, role in this play that God has written, produced, directed, and, and is causing. And if we have that view of the world and of God, we come to a verse like this, we say, you see, God is willing it, we just ex accept it as part of the will of God. That is Christian determinism that is far from Peter's theology or the Bible's theology. It is far from his mind. And in fact, he's using a conditional statement here, if it is the will of God, which means that it's not always the will of God, but sometimes it is the will of God for you to suffer. It's not always his will for you to suffer. In fact, we know that what is the full will of God is that you receive him as Savior and you spend eternity without suffering in his kingdom, correct? The will of God is that no one should perish, but all should come to repentance. That is the declared will of God in his scriptures. So really, he doesn't want anyone to spend eternity in suffering. That's why he sent his son to die on Calvary's cross for our sins. He doesn't want anyone to suffer. That's his will. But in the circumstances of life, there are occasions where it is God's will for us to suffer. And we have already looked at some of those occasions in our study. We're going to keep referencing them because they're the premier examples of suffering in Scripture. We think of Job, we think of Joseph, we think of David, we think of these examples of, of, of Hezekiah, others in the Old Testament that have suffered, including the apostles in, in Acts, and, we looked, and we've looked at them. And we're going to keep looking at them. Every time Peter comes to suffering, we have to fall back onto those, onto those uh, examples to really help us formulate a good understanding of what it means for this kind of verse to come up in our study. And so he says, it is better. Let's start that. It is better uh, to suffer for doing good than for doing. Let's take the will of God phrase out of the verse for a second. We'll come back to it. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I think all of us will agree with that, right? <laughs> so, if I do something wrong and evil, and I suffer for it, what is the response? You got what you deserved. Okay? And we, have less, we should have very little compassion for anyone like that. Well, they got what they deserved doesn't mean we shouldn't have any compassion. We're going to have a lot less. Because our mentality is rightly so. They got what they deserved. You know, you do all this, and, and you end up destitute and homeless because you did drugs, lost your job, lost your, destroyed your relationships. We go, well, that's kind of, you kind of destroyed your life yourself. You got 
what you sow. You reaped what you sowed. You got what you deserved. It doesn't mean that we can't then pick up the, help try to pick up the pieces, but we don't start that process until they recognize that they are suffering for their own sin. They got themselves there. And as long as people keep pointing the finger, keep pointing the finger away from themselves over suffering for evil, and if you go to any prison ministry, it's a lot of that. You know, I got with the wrong friends. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone just got out of prison last week, and I'm sitting there engaging him, and he found out I was a pastor. He asked me what I do for a living. I didn't tell him I raised yaks. I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> da, 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 da. We're having this long conversation. I just got out of prison, and... Um, and I, I had the wrong friends. I was like, well, who picked their friends? Who did you, who, you picked your friends. But it's that deflection of responsibility. And, um, and as long as they're in that condition of deflected responsibility, I really uh, struggle with ever trying to help them because they're still reaping what they've sown and they still haven't figured it out that they need to take personal responsibility for that, and then we can help correct that. Then, and that's not just true in terms of assisting family members. You got a you got a rebellious teenager that sows a bunch of evil, reaps a bunch of suffering. Don't go jumping in there and helping them. No, you let them live what they have sown until they're broken. and take personal responsibility for their life, for the choices they made that brought that suffering. So if your suffering is because you did evil, you're going to see pretty much a, a, a non-compassionate response because I'm waiting for you to take responsibility for how you got yourself to where you are. And if you think that's harsh, this is exactly how God treats man. Can God save the whole world? Well, he sent his son for the whole world. But until you personally take responsibility for your sin as an affront to God, instead of blaming Eve, sorry, I threw that example in there out of Genesis 1, instead of blaming Eve, blaming the serpent, uh, and take personal responsibility, God does not save you. Correct? So let's let God be our example of how to deal with people suffering because they did evil. So we recognize that that doesn't mean they're unsavable. It means there has to be something happen in their heart before we can uh, bring deliverance there. And so it's good to suffer for doing evil, is what I'm trying to get at. It is good. It doesn't say suffering for doing evil is bad in this verse, does it? It says it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. So if you're suffering for doing evil, that's a good thing. And, and we need to let that happen. Quit bailing people out while they're suffering for doing evil when they haven't taken responsibility for what they, the evil they did. God won't do it for mankind, and he is all-loving. So don't let them sit there and say, you don't love us, you don't care about us. I'm like, I do. I'm waiting for you to really correct this problem by taking responsibility for the evil that caused the problem. The problem is the symptom. Cause is the evil choices you made. You won't even recognize that. You want me to keep throwing resources at your problem, but you won't acknowledge its origin, its causation. God doesn't work that way. You shouldn't work that way in your family. We as a church don't work that way. We wait for you to recognize, I have done this to myself by my evil. And we have record and record and record of that in God's word of men who got to that point and says, I have done evil, and then God responds. I have done evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the statement that God waits to hear. I have done evil in the sight of the Lord. That's why I'm suffering. So, suffering for doing evil is not bad. It is good. But it's better, okay? It's better to suffer for doing good than evil. Why? Well, I don't deserve it. That's not fair. Well, the Bible tells us 
that when we suffer for doing what is right, what is godly, what is good, it, it describes us as filling up the suffering of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a strange term to use? We are filling up. Didn't Jesus Christ suffer enough for everyone? Yes. But we are contributing and adding to the value of his righteous suffering with our righteous suffering. That we are coming into agreement. We are on the same plane, and in God's eyes, we are, we are suffering the same category as Christ's suffering. Now, Christ did no evil ever. Was he ever hungry? Yes. Was he ever tired? Yes, of course he was. Um, was he ever disappointed? Um, yes. He was betrayed. He was disappointed. Uh, he was disappointed by going up to a fig tree and didn't have any figs. So he cursed it. Fig tree shrivels up, dies. Um, don't disappoint Jesus. <laughs> There's going to be a penalty there sometime. Jesus suffered righteously, never did injury and harm, and is that suffering that, uh, that we recognize is the redemptive act of Jesus Christ for our sin. He suffered for us. So when I'm suffering for righteousness, who am I suffering for? It's better to suffer for good. So I do good, I suffer for it. That doesn't seem fair. Oh, I did what was right and I got penalized. He did what was wrong, he's getting away with it. Only for the season. His judgment's coming. He, did, he didn't stand for, why am I getting penalized? I did it the right way. I did it the honest way. It's kind of like at the border, right? Yeah, the people want to come in legally, and you got people to just run across. The people who do it legally takes a little longer, right? You think, that's what we believe. We don't recognize how many times they get shipped back and come across, shipped back, come across, shipped back, come across, and how long that process is, and then they're hiding most of their time here. Um, well, the people that come across uh, legally, you ever talk to any of them, legal immigrants, about illegal immigrants, they are the most adamantly opposed to illegal immigration. They did it right. But yet many times we penalize them. It takes more time. It's a little more costly. Um, but boy, the end result, after you get through all of that process, is nice because now you're here legal. You don't have to look over your shoulder. You don't have to worry about being pulled over. You don't have to worry about any of that. You can breathe easier. So when we suffer for doing good, we might say, well, that's not fair. But neither is it fair that Jesus Christ came and suffered and died in our place for our sin. And so when God looks upon the, the suffering for good, he says that's the same as Christ's suffering. So I ask the question again, who are you suffering for? If you're suffering for doing good, Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, who are you suffering for? And we go back to that testimony of salvation or suffering that others might see and be ashamed eventually that you persist in doing good no matter the cost. And you cannot claim that ground until you have paid the cost. When it costs you to do good is when people know that you are really committed to doing good. And they will even be more ashamed. If it doesn't cost you anything, they're just assuming you're being good because your life is working out okay. And, and, and so as long as everything goes swimmingly for you, you're going to keep doing good. Well, that's the way of the world. It's when it costs you something that now you have a testimony. But you have to them. And it adds to that idea of that you're reaching. So it's when it costs you. Yes, I will acknowledge my sin and... Dealing with people on that level, uh, it, it, it just goes against our natural instinct, because our natural instinct is sin. sin. Your old nature, your sin nature. So I've had times where I've had people come in and they ex make a profession of faith, accept Christ, they want to come into our church. I'm like, you have, you have your history. Uh, well, I'm a new creature in Christ. I said, yeah, but you still have a worn out for your rest. So what's the first thing we're going to do as a Christian? Turn yourself in. What? Yeah, turn yourself in. 
Trust God, take care of it, turn yourself in. Do you know what that might cost me? I said, yeah, I do. Jail time, prison, deportation, turn yourself in. You see, the real measure of your commitment to doing good is how much it costs you. What do you risk to do right? If, you're really, if Jesus Christ is really your Lord and Savior, he wants you to do good, and whatever it costs you, in fact, sometimes I tell them, you get deported, our church will pay to bring you back. Not across the border illegally. We'll pay and help you and we'll sponsor you through there. Just go back. Turn yourself in. I'll visit you in jail. <laughs> Turn yourself in. And so far, only one person has ever done that. You know how much time they spent in jail? None. Now, is that the way it's always going to be? No, but he was willing. He said, if you say that's what I need to do, then let's do it. And then he could function with a clear conscience from then on. Because that was rectified. What is, until you cost you something to do good, your testimony isn't sure. But there's another reason that we, and that brings us back to that phrase, the will of God. So it's good to suffer for evil. Because that's necessary to bring you to repentance. It's better to suffer for good. Because then you're inviting others to repentance, to be ashamed and, and that they might be saved. And, but there's another facet of what makes suffering for good better, and that's that phrase, if it is the will of God. That is so wonderful a phrase, and I hate when people abuse it and go into determinism. If it's God's will to bring himself glory by your suffering, I want to be first in line. What? You want to be Job? First in line? What is it that made Job first in line in heaven of Satan? Satan, Jesus, God says, hey, have you thought about Job? Look at him. He serves me. He's a faithful man, perfect all his ways. Can you imagine God boasting about you in heaven in front of Satan? Then look at that guy. Man, he serves me faithfully. You can't find a, you can't find fault with this guy. And Satan says, "Oh well." Then he starts to attack the motives. Why? And here is what gives us opportunity to bring glory to God: is that Satan questions your motives, and let's just put Satan, the world, questions your motives, and even your own flesh. Even let's be honest: in our own minds, sometimes we doubt why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you ask yourself that question, why am I doing this? And we go through, and either we go through this process of rationalization and keep doing it, or we go through and say, well, it's not really glorified, it's not really biblical, it's not in keeping with my belief system, and we change that, and we approach that, and sometimes we confirm it. No, what I'm doing is right, and here's why, boom, 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 boom. And so we have really three responses you can have to that. And so um, two of them are confirming and one of them is not. One of them is wrong confirmation through rationalization. The other one is reconfirmation through truth of Scripture. Why are you doing good and even willing to suffer for it? And so God lets Satan at, at Job. He sets the perimeters. And so you could easily say it was God's will for Job to suffer to bring glory to himself in heaven. Now, did God want Job to suffer? No, and in the end, Job is restored by God and is blessed by God. It's not that he wanted that to happen, but rather, he wanted Satan's mouth shut in his presence, in accusing Job. And that Job endured and endured suffering for no reason, it seems, for, from his perspective. He, he doesn't understand it. He questions it. His friends, quote-unquote, come in and say, well, you must have been a really bad sinner. You must have suffered for evil. That is their conclusion. You must have done something really bad to be suffering like this. 
And Job says, I've racked my brain. I can't come up with it. I don't know what I've done. He says, I'm sure that it's not for any evil I've done that I'm suffering. And he is correct in that assessment. Because it is better to suffer for good than for evil. Suffering for evil is your salvation. Is for your benefit. Suffering for good brings glory to God is for his benefit. That's why it says we fill up the suffering of Jesus Christ. That is, we give it more meaning, more purpose, more substance. We've added substance to Christ's suffering because we're saying, listen, this is the motive for this, and it's better for me to suffer for doing good. It's not for my deliverance. It's for God's glory. That everyone around me, because the accuser now is down here, he's not in heaven, he's, he's kicked out of heaven, he's only on earth, he's roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, his agents are all around us, they will accuse and accuse and accuse us, but on earth, not in heaven anymore, because the blood of Jesus Christ is there, that's theology, we're going to get to that next week. That's our Christology. So, we're being accused here on earth, oh, you're doing this, you're doing this for selfish motives. You heard that recently? You're selfish for not doing what you're told to do. You're a threat to all of us. You're this. You're selfish. It's like we examine our motives and say, well, we're not really doing this for selfish reasons. But we're willing to suffer. You don't want me to go to the fair. I won't go to the fair. I can live without going to the fair or the balloon fiesta. I can live with that. You call that suffering? <laughs> Maybe. I have to get this test once a week. Is that suffering? Eh, maybe a little bit. It's inconvenience. We still haven't really hit suffering yet. I'm still waiting for the internment camps and getting beat up and things like that. It's coming. But um, all you have to do is study what Germany was like about 70 years ago, and you'll understand what's going down right now. So we're going to keep doing good, even when it costs us. And as the accuser comes, they're going to say, no, these people are really committed to this. They're really committed. They're willing to go to jail over this. They're willing to, be, to disappear over this. This is what's happening in some countries. They're really, really committed. In communist countries over the last... 80 years or so as Christians have stood up and keep worshiping God and they get, they get imprisoned for it and pastors keep preaching and they go to prison for it and it's like, and then in prison they keep preaching and huge revivals happen in prisons and what is the populace's response to them? They are really committed to that stuff. They're willing to die. You're suffering for doing good. What does that communicate to everybody? These people know something that I don't know. They're committed to something I don't understand. And, they, and ultimately God is glorified there that all the accusers are going to be silenced one day on that day of judgment when they will bow before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he looks at them and they know their sin but God is glorified when, the, when we are good. And yes, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer to prove that his truth endures in our life. To bring him glory. That we have the privilege of bringing glory to his name. We sing, the, what we, sing? we pray the Lord's Prayer. We don't do that because we don't do repetitive praying. Uh, but you know the Lord's Prayer. Let's quote it together. Uh, whatever version you've memorized it in. Our Father, you, you're not quoting it together. Come on. All right, we'll start right now. Our Father, which are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. They are, thank you. <laughs> and forgive us, passes, as we forgive those who trespass against us. For Temptation, but deliver us righteous. Is the king, kingdom, kingdom and power, glory forever and ever. Depends on what translation you use. Do you notice that little phrase? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
What do you think happens when the will of God gets done on earth as it is in heaven? God gets glory. And really the Christian life is about me living the will of God on earth just like I would obey him in heaven. So if you're in heaven, what do you expect your life to be? Now, for the Muslim person, their heaven is a place where Allah isn't, and they get to have uh, 70 virgin women, perpetual virgins, and you have you know, decadence and wine and just all that, that they suffer without. Today they say they suffer without, but they don't. And that's their heaven, where Allah isn't. That's not the heaven that we wait for. We look for a time when we are in the presence of Jesus Christ on a permanent basis. What do you expect to happen there? I'm pretty sure we're all going to be, at least I am anticipating that I can't wait to do whatever Jesus wants me to. I hope that's your view of heaven. I'm going to be enjoying his presence, and part of that enjoyment of his presence is to be perfectly able and equipped in, in, with a new body to, to worship and glorify Jesus every day, every moment of every day. Well, guess what? You can start now. <laughs> you can start now. You just, if you pray that prayer, you can start now. You just said, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you don't have control over the whole earth, but you have control over you. And when we say that I'm going to do good, it means I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going to be obedient to his will. And sometimes it brings God's glory to test that in your life. Why are you doing good? Is it just because things are going well for you? Or is it because you truly are a servant of mine? Are you truly my son? Are you truly my heir? Are you truly a follower of Jesus Christ? And we have an opportunity to bring glory to God. And that's why when the disciples are preaching and they get hauled in and questioned and examined and told, stop doing that, and then they keep doing that, they get hauled in again, now they get beat for it. They leave rejoicing. They are counted worthy of suffering for the name's sake in the book of Acts. That is a powerful understanding of what Peter's talking about here. God wants to test our commitment to him, and it is only for his glory, and I am willing to prove him that his power is real in my life. Not just by doing good do I evidence his power, but by suffering and still doing good, I evidence his power. And when I complain over the slightest inconvenience for being a Christian, if I complain for the slightest little bit of costliness it takes when it costs me to do good, um, if I complain about that, I am robbing God of his glory. Because you are not truly suffering in a righteous manner. You can say, why is this happening? You can question that. You can try to understand it. Um, but ultimately, uh, we should just be rejoicing because the Bible says rejoice always. <laughs> Isn't that a command? Rejoice always. And so I can rejoice while suffering because I recognize that I'm not suffering for doing evil. If that were the case, I would, I would have godly sorrow and have repentance and correct these things in my life and be for my salvation, for my deliverance, for my sanctification, all those things. But if I'm doing good and I'm suffering, I'll sit around and say, this is not fair. <laughs> you just rob God of glory. His purpose for that suffering is to bring him glory. And so like the apostles, we should rejoice, hey, God is counting us worthy. And brethren, this has to be our attitude in these days, that we are credited by God for standing up against the world, and while they want to abuse you, that we recognize that that is an opportunity for us to give God greater glory, and we participate with Jesus Christ in his suffering 
uh, not for ourselves, but we're suffering for others. We're suffering for their salvation, and we're suffering for God's glory. That's why suffering for doing good is better than suffering for doing evil. Suffering for doing evil is good, but it's for yourself. It's for your deliverance. You need to suffer when you do evil so you can be saved, so you can be sanctified. So it's good. But what's better is when you suffer for doing good because now you're suffering for other people and now the motives aren't selfish at all. They're selfless. That's how you're participating with Christ. And this is what God calls us to. This is what Peter has in mind. This is not a deterministic statement. This is saying, you know, there are seasons when God says, I want you to prove to the world and demonstrate to them that you know the way, the truth, and the life. That you are the representative of me on earth and it is your chance to bring me glory. And we say, I'm first in line, right behind Job. Because you see, unlike Job, we have the scriptures. We don't need to have the discourse with our three friends. And we don't need to ask this question over again, why, this, why is God doing this? This isn't really just. Um, we don't have to have that because we have the book of Job to learn better. We can have more wisdom than Job. Because we have the book of Job. Because we have the scriptures. We know how to respond. And we have the Holy Spirit in us to guide us in that. And so we let, you know, it's, it's not fair, but I don't expect fair here. When fair happens, when Jesus is in charge and fair happens, I want to be on the right side of the line here. That's the selfish motive. But no, while I'm suffering right here for doing good, I'm doing it so that others can see that there's something of substance here they need to think about for their own salvation. And when I'm suffering for doing good here, I'm thinking, well, God needs to be glorified in my life. And if right now he is more glorified by my suffering, by my impoverishment, please recognize that's where it started with Job. Took away his, his livelihood. We've had many of you had your jobs threatened in the last month. Some of you still have. Um, that happened to Job. Took away his family. Many of your family members don't talk to you anymore, don't want to see you. Happened to Job. They died. God killed them. All of his children. Not his wife. And his wife turned on him. Took away his health. Afraid that maybe taking the stand might cost you a little bit physically. Job had that. All to demonstrate God's glory. All this Job suffered and did not sin. Did he try to understand it? Yes. Did he, did he come to God and say, I don't, and then God says, you know, this is all about my glory, not yours. You're suffering for me. I've suffered for you. You're suffering to bring me glory. And you're suffering as a testimony. And it's interesting that at the end of the book of Job, his three friends had to go get sacrifices to God, but he had to go through Job as their priest. You go to Job, offer sacrifices to me before Job, because Job, I will accept if he prays for you. Well, we understand that when we suffer for doing good, we're suffering for others, not for ourselves. When we suffer for evil, it's good, but we're suffering for ourselves, for our redemption. When we suffer for good, we're suffering for others, and that's better. That's the better kind of suffering. It is selfless. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us that sent your Son down to suffer on our behalf. And Lord, help us to have a better mindset that we keep wanting and, and we have been trained to look for what is fair in our own personal experience without seeing you as a part of the equation and others as part of the equation. 
Lord, help us recognize that when we suffer for doing good, we bring you glory. That when we suffer for being good, we, for doing good, we bring better opportunities for others to be ashamed and to come to Christ. Just by observing our suffering and maintaining righteousness. Lord, these principles are from your word. We thank you for them, but we know that living them is hard. Help us to keep our eyes on you. And perhaps this is why you've told us to meet more often as the day approaches of your coming, as perilous times come that we spend more time with your people, more time in your word, so we can keep our mind, our attention on these, that we can truly suffer and rejoice in it, that we have suffered for you, that we have suffered for others, that they might stand fast, that they might repent, depending upon their condition. Lord, that we might be a thankful people even in the midst of it. Lord, we do pray for our brethren in the earth that are truly suffering, not just inconvenienced as we are. We are being threatened with suffering, but we really haven't experienced it yet. We know that's not true for some, for many on our earth today. And we pray for our brethren that you might help them to stand and to stand joyful. they might truly bring you glory, be instructive to us, and to bring the oppressors to shame, that they might turn from their sin and embrace your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. And it's his name we pray. Amen.